if you've ever had a close relationship, um, especially marriage, I'll keep, I'll keep it to marriage. If, if you've been married, early in, your, early in your marriage, in those early years, you, you have to learn your partner. Like you have, to, you have to figure out how they learn things. You have to know which words to say to them so that it doesn't trigger them to anger. Like uh, there's little things that you learn, like there are uh, habits that you may not like. Or, or things you have to get accustomed to. And because you're in this intimate stage early on and you're learning, uh, a lot of conflict comes up. And so I remember early on in, in my marriage, when, when I first got married, um, there was a period of time where me and my wife were, uh, we, we were like bickering a lot because we were still learning each other. And, and I remember it clearly, there was a particular week uh, where we were both like praying to the Lord, asking the Lord, and it was like, it was like, all right, Lord, like we want to be able to respond rightly to one another. Like I want to be able to respond to her in love, even when I'm upset. And she was say, she was thinking the same thing. And so uh, we began to pray this together and and separately, and uh, and for that whole week. So so it's, it's crazy because we began to pray that thing, and that same day a conflict arose. And, and, I, and I'm just giving general because I don't remember all these conflicts. But I, I remember spe- specifically the first time we prayed together, it had to be a couple hours later, a conflict came up. And what happened? We failed miserably. Um, and so we came back together and it was like, dang, man, we was just praying that we would respond rightly. And so we, we were excited. And it was like, okay, Lord, give us another opportunity to respond rightly to one another. So we prayed together and, and we started getting it in and we were excited. And the next day, a conflict came up. And guess what happened? We failed miserably. And so for this, this whole week, it was hilarious. I mean, it's hilarious now. It wasn't hilarious then. But it, it, like this whole week, it seemed like every day a conflict came up. And we continued to fail. And at the end of the week, there was this culmination where uh, we were laying in bed and we were angry with one another. And I'm, I had my back turned to her. And I'm one, of those t- I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that, like, if we're beefing, I don't want to deal with it right then and there. Like, I, like, don't give me that, don't let the sun came down on your anger stuff. Like, I don't want to hear it. Because uh, I know me. Like, if, if you try to resolve a conflict with me right away... I'm going to say something I ain't got no business saying. And my wife is the exact opposite. Like if there's a conflict, she wants to stop everything right then and there. She wants to talk about it. She wants to know how I feel. She wants to, she wants to know my emotions and, and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm like what is it? leave me alone. And so at the end of this week, like we're laying in bed and, and I have my back turned to her. And um, we were arguing. And she said something to me that offended me. And so when she offended me, I was, you know, at that point, I had made up my mind that everything that happened following her offense to me was justified. And if you're in a close relationship with somebody, you know those words to say. You know exactly what to say that's going to spark them. You know exactly what to say. Like, you know those words, if you, especially if you're married. You know exactly what to say to get them going. And so I said it. And she got going. And so, uh, and so, you know, we began to argue, and, um, and, uh, and, you know, I was like, you know what, forget this. And so I took my pillow, and I said, I'm going to lay on the couch. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, uh, 
And, but I did that on purpose because my, life is, my wife is one of those type of people, like, especially early on. Like, she loved to, like, in the blanket, I mean, loved to lay up under me in the blankets and be real close and stuff. And, and so I knew that if I left her laying in the bed by herself, she was going to feel it. And I wanted her to feel it like I felt it when she offended me with her words. And so I grabbed my pillow, I went in the living room, and I laid on the couch, and I turned the TV on. And then I turned the TV off. And I said, you know what, I'm going to sleep out here all night. Because I'm going to wait for her to wake up in the morning and come out and apologize to me. Right? And, um, but it was funny because that whole week I had been uh, listening about, I, I was listening to the sermon by Matt Chamberlain. It was talking about men being the initiators and, and what it looked like to be an initiator of peace in your home. And I was laying there in the dark and it was quiet. And the Lord just, I mean, he just... And, I, and I'm not one of the people that where the Lord just kind of thunders his voice out of nowhere. But I, I remember distinctly the Lord's voice saying, how are you initiating peace in your home right now? Uh, and so, of course, I had to go in there and repent to my wife. But I say all that to say, like, there is always going to be conflict, especially as believers. Like, conflict is always present. Either, and, and I'm talking even right now, like, Either you have just come out of a conflict, either you're in a conflict right now, or there's a conflict waiting around the corner, right? And so I, I said all that today is because today I don't want to talk about the conflict necessarily, and I don't want to talk about how we should respond to the conflict. Today I want to talk about the source of the conflict, I want to talk about the source of the conflict. And so today we're going to look at uh, a conflict named desire. A conflict named desire. Turn with me to James chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little backdrop. I like to get, I like to get the backdrop. That way you know uh, the context in which he's speaking. Um, so James, when he writes this letter, he's writing this letter to a group of dispersed believers. Um, and this is a group of people who, um, uh, because of their Jewish uh, heritage, are very religious or have come from a religious background. And now that they've come to the faith, like they have a little bit of Christianity, uh, but they're still like they have a religious background, but they're still young in the faith, I would say. They're still learning the ways of the faith. Right. Um, and so, like, he, like they're going through trials. There's, a, there's trials all around them at this particular time. And so he has to write this letter to encourage them, like, to persevere through these trials. Um, and, and not only that, but he has to, he has to remind them that, yo, though you may be, uh, like, uh, excel theologically because of your religious, your religious background, practically you're still a little immature. So I have to keep reminding you to be... Uh, doer of the world and not just a hearer of the word, right? And then he also tells them, he says, listen, also along with that, like y'all are really partial. Like y'all are too partial in your mix. I mean, because they used to get it in all the time, cats be having barbecues and, and, and having events and stuff back then. And, and if somebody in that inner circle, if, if somebody in that inner circle who was considered popular in that, in that time or in your community was having something, like, cats, like you would rearrange your schedule to make sure you were there. You take off from work to make sure you were there. Like you would take three buses and a half hour walk to make sure that you're getting it in in the mix. And he's saying, like, y'all got to be careful of who y'all are lifting up in your presence. Because if it was just somebody in your mix who wasn't as popular, would you still be doing all that? 
Would you still be going out of your way to make sure that you're serving them and, and puffing up their ego? And not only that, but he tells them, he tells them like to be careful that your faith is producing fruit. Because a lot of y'all are, are spitting out that y'all have this faith, but there's no fruit that's being bore. I can't see anything. And so he has to remind them, like, though I know you have faith, like, unless I see the fruit, the world is not going to be able to tell. And not only that, but then he says something. He says, he says, though, like because of your theological background, um, uh, like some of you think that you want to be teachers. Everybody wants to be in the teacher class. Everybody wants to scoop somebody up under their wing and be a discipler. But he says, he says, not many of y'all should be teachers. Some of y'all don't need to be teaching nobody. Right? And then he addresses the rich class. And he begins to, to, to beat on them because they're, they're all about their wealth. Um, and I guess I can skip that one because we're not really rich here. We're just a poor urban church, right? But, um, and so because of where they are, because of where they are in their trials, because of where they are in their spiritual maturity, because there's partiality going on, because everybody wants to be a teacher, um, because there's no fruit coming from their faith, like all of these things are happening and there's conflict. Go to James chapter 4 with me. And so in James chapter 4, he addresses something um, that I think gets to the heart of the issue as terms of where these people are. And I, I listed all these distinct things about this people, and it sounds real familiar to me. I began to look through James, and I began to think about how theologically sound they were, but practically, like, they weren't as far along. I began to think about how partial they were to certain people. I began to think about how sometimes their faith was there, but the works were missing. And I said, that sounds familiar. And so in, in James chapter 4, he says this. He asked them a question in light of everything that's going on. He says, what is causing the quarrels and what is causing the fights among you, right? And so quarrels there can be, uh, like, it basically means the state of war. Like, what, like why are y'all at war? And then he says, he says, he says, what is causing the quarrels? What is causing the fights or the, indi the individual disputes, the individual bickering? Like, what's causing this? Like, y'all are believers, but I can't tell the difference sometimes because, like, I look at y'all and, and there's always drama. There's always a situation. Somebody has always been offended. Somebody's always got something to say. What's the problem? And so go to, go to, go to, like, he asked that question. He asked this rhetorical question. And when he asked this question, I think it's key because if, if we were to get asked this question, I think many of us would begin to reel off all of these external things that are causing the conflict. Well, so-and-so, you know, they said this to me. And I just want to make sure that so-and-so is in community. Um, I just, like, all of these external things would begin to reel off of our lips as far as why there's conflict. But I like how he asks them this. He says, why is there conflict? Why is there fighting among you? And then he answers the question with another question. And he says, he says, why is there fighting? Why is there conflicts? And he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What is the cause? Is it not this, that your passions, that word passions is, comes from the word hedonone 
which is where we get our English word hedonism from. Hedonism, making pleasure your chief end. Making pleasure your chief end. I like how John Piper defines it. He, he says hedonism is uh, whatever it is that you take most pleasure in, making that thing your God. Think of lust and, and sex. And he says, he says here, he says, is it not that your passions, that your desires, that your pleasures are at war within you? So what he's saying is these pleasures and these passions aren't dormant. They're not just chilling. Galatians 5.17 says that the spirit and the flesh are at war daily, making known their passions, making known what it is they want you to do. And he says, the source of the conflict is not all of these external things that are going on. It's not your boss. It's not your husband. It's not your kids. It's the fact that you have desires. And not only do you have desires, but they're waging war inside of you. And not only are they waging war, but if your desires are waging war and they're causing conflict, then it's probably because you're leaning towards the side of the flesh. And so he says, is it not... Your desires that is waging war within you. Verse 2, he says, he says, he says, you desire and you do not have. So you murder. And he says, you covet and you can't obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. And murder, when we hear that word murder, it can be physical. It can be the physical killing of someone else. But I think more, more, uh, I think, I think here James is more directly pointing to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, They say to you, thou shalt not kill. But I say, if you hate, if you so much as hate your brother in your heart. See, we have different levels of sin. I mean, different levels of anger and, and hurt. And when we feel justified, we like being angry. There is something about anger that just, whew, that thing feels good. There is something about being, like there is something about being angry with somebody and letting them know it that just feels good, right? But he says, even to hate, to be angry in such a way that you've made yourself superior over someone else is murder. I remember uh, just growing up as a, as a, as a young boy, um, back when I was late 80s, early 90s, I was real into wrestling, WWF, right? Absolutely. I'm not talking about that stuff now y'all see on TV. That's just a men's soap opera. I'm talking about back late 80s, early 90s, man. You couldn't tell me that thing wasn't real. I'm messing around, come up, get somebody. You tell, try to tell me wrestling wasn't real. You know what I'm saying? I go back Hulk Hogan Ultimate. See, y'all don't even know about that. I'm just, hey. But back in the back in the day, I was like wrestling was my thing. I used to love wrestling more than sports, more than anything else. Um, and I had a friend. My best friend lived across the street, and his parents were well off. Um, and my parents, you know, my mom was only working, and my dad was sick, and I got hurt on the job. And so there was like a there was a like if you know my family, you know there's a village of us. Like we basically have our own zip code. Like, there's so many of us. Um, and so, like, we weren't that well off. And I remember my friend, I remember the first time he got some wrestlers. And I didn't have any at the time. And, and I was like, man, like, he don't even like wrestling like that. 
He don't need them wrestlers. He don't know as much as I know about wrestling. He ain't even going to play with them things right. You know what I'm saying? And so I began to covet them things. I wanted what he had, like more than anything. I think that's the, the one time that sticks out to me, that I wanted something so bad, and I couldn't have it. Right. And then I remember Christmas that same year. And, you know, my, the, all through that year, my mom used to always tell us, you know, don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Like you can't have what everybody else has. Right. I know some of y'all don't heard that. Um, and that just makes you even more upset. Like, come on, man. Like, give me some sort of hope or something. And so that Christmas, I remember, like, I, and, and we wasn't that, we wasn't, like, we were kind of poor, so I don't know how they pulled this off, but this was, like, the biggest Christmas. This is the Christmas I remember getting the most gifts, and this was, like, at the poorest time, so I don't know what happened. Um, um, but I remember waking up that morning, and all I wanted, my mind that whole year was on these wrestlers. All I wanted was, a, like, I wanted, some, I wanted some wrestlers. That's all I wanted, and so I woke up that morning, and my brothers and sisters are opening up gifts, and they getting into their presents, and I get to my spot. I get to my section, and there's the little WWF ring right there with the American flag and the championship belt on the side. Some of y'all remember that, right? And, and I get to my section, and all there is is, is the ring, and, and Hulk Hogan is standing in the middle of the ring by himself, and all I can remember saying is, who in the world is he going to wrestle? wrestler like what I'm supposed to do with that brother can't get no variety like and so I was hot man I began to brood at that point like bitterness had already sunken in like I was at that point like I began to regret my mom because she wouldn't give me them wrestlers my I was I was I wanted to walk across the, the street and tell my my man's that he wasn't my best friend no more because he had more wrestlers than I did and 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 it was crazy it was crazy. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying, he's saying, he's saying you want your desires, but you can't have it. And he's saying you covet and you can't obtain it. And because you can't have what you want, you murder. Have you ever wanted something so bad and you knew you couldn't have it? And the more you knew you couldn't have it, the more you wanted it? That's what's going on. Some of y'all today have been asking the Lord for something. Some of y'all today have been desiring something in your heart and you haven't gotten it yet. And it's causing conflict. But we by nature are blame shifters. And so today, like what is it that you're desiring today that's causing conflict within you? And so he says you desire and you do not have so you murder. And then verse 3 he says you ask. He says, you ask, but you don't receive. You ask, but you don't receive. Of course we ask for the things that we want. Of course we desire, like when we desire these things, we're asking for them and we're petitioning to the Lord for them. Most of the time, right? But like what he's saying here is, what I think he's saying here is, those times when we really desire something, we always have a way of trying to work them out on our own. We always try to make it happen by ourselves, right? And, and, and when we try to make it happen by ourselves and we're trying to move like all these things around to positionally uh, put ourselves in a better position to get what we want, like there's no need then to seek the Lord. There's no need. What's the need? Like I've already put myself in a good enough position to get what I want. I don't need him now. 
right? So he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then he says something else. He says, he says but when you do ask, you still don't receive. Oh, so it's a lose-lose then. Either I don't ask and I don't receive, or I do ask, but I still don't receive. Let's keep reading and see what he says. He says, you do ask and not receive because when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I like that word spend there. That word spend can literally be translated to squander. To squander. So when we do ask, we still don't get that thing in our heart that we've been desiring because all we want to do is squander it on our pleasures. If there's one thing I've learned, if there's one thing I've learned in terms of uh, uh, the Lord answering prayers, it's this. The Lord will never, never finance hedonistic squandering. The Lord will never finance hedonistic squandering. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How do we get here? This conflict, I understand this conflict, right? And our desires are the source of this conflict. Okay, I'm with you. Um, but how did we get to this place where our desires have taken us so far that we're now friends with the world? This is scary, y'all. Let's go to James chapter 1 real quick. Flip over to James chapter 1, verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. And he says... He says, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So basically he's saying, like, when you're tempted, don't try to blame God or say, like, God is the reason that I'm being tempted. Uh, for that guy who has, has, has struggles with pornography but yet still stays up late at night flipping through HBO and then says, oh, this is the Lord trying to tempt me to see I can, if I can overcome. Nah. Nah, fam. I mean, nah. The Lord always tests our character, but he never tempts us to sin. He always tests our character, but he never tempts us to sin. And so, like, that gets the, that gets the excuse out of the way. He, he says, listen, I, like, before we get to the issue, I want to I throw your excuse out the way. Don't give me that God stuff. The devil made me do it. And so he says, look at verse 14 with me. He says, he says but each person is tempted when he is Lord and enticed by what? His own desires. He said, when you're tempted, when you're tempted, you have been lured away or dragged away and enticed by your own desires. I like that word enticed there. That, in, that word enticed gives the imagery of like baiting a hook, putting some bait on a hook, right? To do what? To deceive. Like when, when you put bait on a hook, you're, you're doing that to deceive the fish, to mask the fish and make it seem like there's something beneficial there for the fish when actually the only thing that's there is danger and death, right? 
And so he says, he says, when we have been enticed by ourselves, all we do is mask what we really want and, and, we, and we put bait over it and we cast the bait out and we hook ourselves and then we drag ourselves away. But it's not because of any external happening. He says that we are dragged away and baited or trapped by our own desires. Not because of anybody else, but because of our own desires. Right? And so, and so uh, look at verse 15. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Right? And conceit, when we think of conception, we, always, we usually think of life, right? To give life to. And it's funny here that conceived, when he speaks of conceiving, he, he talks about giving life to something that brings forth death. That's crazy. And he says, he says when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, what happens when we get baited by our own desires, what, what happens when we have deceived ourselves and and, and and become dragged away and trapped by our own desires. Like we, we leave the back door open. And we leave a little room for the enemy to come in. The father of lies. The adversary. We leave a little room for him to come in and whisper sweet nothings to us. I was watching the movie Bedazzled yesterday. I don't know if y'all seen that. Um, uh, you, you seen that? Crazy? Yeah. I thought I, see, I thought I was going to be the only guy that seen that. So I wasn't really wanting to bring that up because it's... But if Manny's seen it, I'm good, right? So, so I was watching this movie Bedazzled yesterday, and, and this dude had, uh, you know, he was kind of a geeky dude, and there was a, there was a girl that worked with him in his office, and they had been working together four years, and it was one of those movies where, like, he was always too nervous to go say something to her, and she didn't even know who he was, and, and all this stuff. And so he really desired her. He wanted her for himself. And so here comes the devil, uh, the devil came up to him, and she was Elizabeth Hurley. It was a, a, a young lady who played the devil, and she came up to him, and, 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 and they were having a conversation uh, about this girl. And she said something that struck me. She said, she said, I know your heart. I just want you to be happy. She said, she said it's like, it's okay. There's nothing wrong for, with you for you to want that. Just take a little bit, right? God didn't say that. What God really meant when he said that was this, right? And so he says, he says when, when, we, when our desire has conceived and we left the back door open and we've allowed the enemy himself to whisper these sweet nothings into our ears, they conceive and the grotesque child that has been born is sin. Turn, over, turn, turn back to James 4 with me. And so that's how, we, that's how we get to this point where James is telling them, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity of God? And whoever befriends the world or engages the world in an intimate relationship has now made himself an enemy of God. So how do we get to this point where we've become friends of the world? Because we've let our desires go unchecked. We've engaged the enemy in all the little things that he's told us. And sin has now been birthed. And when we sin, we have engaged the world in the very thing that, our, that the spirit within us has been fighting against and I like how he says he says whoever makes him whoever becomes a friend of the world has made himself an enemy of God 
See, we don't just become enemies of God in our sin because it just happens. Like James is saying here, you have voluntarily put yourself, you have voluntarily drawn the line in the sand and put yourself on the other side. This is just from desires. These are our desires we're talking about. Our desires can ultimately lead us to a point where we have voluntarily said in our hearts, I am now a violent aggressor against God. Verse 5. He says, or, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made within us? This is probably the most highly debated verse of the book of James. And there's usually two ways you can go um, because I, I think it's difficult. Because the spirit here, when he talks about the spirit, um, uh, like him yearning the spirit that he made to dwell within us, is he talking about the Holy Spirit or is he talking about the human spirit? And when he says made to dwell within us, is he talking about made in terms of creation or is he talking about made in terms of uh, um, given access to or jurisdiction over? Right. Uh, but based on the context, what I feel James is saying here is he's saying he's saying he yearns jealously over the spirit, capital S, the spirit, the Holy Spirit. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made, made being given access to a jurisdiction over. Uh, he yearns jealously over that spirit to dwell within us, because remember, he's talking to believers here. He's talking to believers. And see, if we go back to Galatians 5, we see, we see the, the wrestling between the flesh and the spirit. And when we've given into our desires and when our desires have been lured away and, and unchecked by ourselves, then we've, we began to lean towards the side of the flesh. And then that leaves little room for the spirit. But he's saying here, like God is yearning. He's longing for jurisdiction over you. He wants his spirit to reside in you, to dwell in, to engage in intimate relationship with. If we allow our souls to be overcome by the things of the flesh, like Paul lists a whole bunch of them, we'll begin to breed immorality. We'll begin to breed anger. We'll begin to breed destruction and death. And he says, the Lord God is yearning, is longing for that jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you can produce righteousness and love and self-control and peace. But without that jurisdiction, like death. And so he says, he, he says, he says, the Lord, he longs, he longs jealously. He longs jealously over it. And he can say jealously here because it's his. Like when we think of jealousy, it's longing for or wanting for something that doesn't rightfully belong to us. But here God is saying, I'm longing for something that rightfully by nature belongs to me. Let's keep moving. And in verse 6 he says, but, but he, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I, I, I know when we define grace, we think in terms of unmerited favor, which is a proper definition. 
But even more so, I think in this passage, when he says, like, have we ever thought of grace in terms of protection? Like, for instance, like when I was reading this passage and it was, and was talking about the, like, God giving more grace, my mind immediately went to my daughter. Like, I have a, a little infant and she's, she's at that stage now where she's about to start crawling around and, um, and we haven't yet baby-proofed the house. Um, and so, like, I, I think of grace as being the little baby fences that you put up in certain areas to keep them from dangers that are unknown from them. Like, I'm going to put a fence in, like by the kitchen door so that she can't get to the kitchen. Why? Because she doesn't understand everything. And so she may get to the kitchen and turn the stove on and burn her hand. She may knock something off of the counter and the knives may come down and cut her. And so like here, I th- the grace of God is being like protection from things that, are, that want to hurt us and kill us and devastate us. And by his grace, he is providentially protecting us from those things. But when our desires go unchecked, we kick that door of grace down. And we go wandering in places that are unknown to us. Where there's danger lurking that we have no idea how to handle. And it says, but God gives more grace. And who does he give the grace to? He doesn't give grace to the proud man. The proud man says, listen, the proud man allows his desires to be uh, checked by himself. Matter of fact, he's the, he's the man that's giving excuses for his desires to go unchecked. He's the dude who's living in unconfessed sin. He's the proud man. He says, I don't need grace. I'm good on my own. But to the humble, more grace, great grace is more than abundant. Um, and he says in verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee you. I like the word submit there. Submit there is a military term. And it means to voluntarily come underneath of, to relinquish all rights and privileges so that you can fall in line with whoever is in rank. And so James here, he says, in light of your desires, he says, I've told you about the cause. The cause of the conflict that you're engaged in is your desires. And I've told you about the the consequence. And the consequence of unchecked desires is is, uh, opposition to the Lord. And he says, but there's a cure. Submit yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then he says, he says, resist the devil. And he will flee. Why does he say resist? We're always going to have desires. Desire, like, like you wouldn't be human if it was not for the desires that were within you. And there, there are many, there are many God-honoring desires that, 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 that are good. But when they go unchecked and when they become our hedonone, even those God-honoring desires can lead to death and destruction. And he says, he says, resist the devil. He, he doesn't say go out and look for him and search for him and kick down that door of grace and go try to find him and slay him yourself. He says, resist. Because those desires are going to come up. 
those passions are going to be there and they're going to be they're going to be pulling at you because James says that they're waging war daily. They're waging war. And so those desires are going to be there and they're going to be waging war within you. But he says, he says, he says, resist, not only resist yourself, but resist the devil and he will flee. When we when I was in engagement, like uh, like once you get towards the end of engagement, you get ready to get married. The, the physicalness gets difficult because you, you can progress in a lot of areas except physical. And I remember Court's father saying to us one time we were sitting down with him and he said, he said, if you can just hold on. Just hold on. And I remember looking at him and laughing like, what you mean? Just hold on. But this is what James is saying here. Like. There are desires there that are rising up in you. But if you can resist, if you can hold on, then he'll flee. I'm going to end with this. End with this. I don't want us to, I don't want us to look at this passage and, and get uh, discouraged and say, man, it seems like I'm always in conflict. It seems like I'm always giving in to my desires. Um, and I'm fearful of myself because if you're saying that I'm tempted by my own desires and I'm being deceived by myself, like, how do I even know? Like, how do I even know what to do? And so, like, it can get frustrating. And so we, we look at conflict and we look at desires and um, the hope lies in Jesus. And I'll tell you why. There was a conflict in the garden. There was a conflict in the garden. Um, and it produced sin. And that sin began to fully mature and it began to prove, uh, uh, it began to uh, bring about death. Death that even today scientists have not found a cure for. Um, and there are many proponents against God that argue the existence of God because of the existence of evil. And the existence of sin. But the hope lies in knowing that there was a Christ. Who stepped down into human time. Into a place in history. Right at the center of conflict. And Colossians 1 says. He says, he says that he has made peace. Through the blood of his cross. He has made peace through the blood. And he's waiting. Creation is waiting for him to come back. And reconcile all things to himself again. And so the prayer is today. That if you're in conflict. If you've just been in conflict. When conflict comes. I don't want us to be a people. Who automatically begin to blame all of the external happenings outside of us. But I want us to check where our hearts are. I want, to ch I want us to check what it is that we actually want. What it is that we desire that's contributing to the conflict. And so the prayer for today is that we would be a people that would see ourselves. That we would take an introspective look at ourselves and our hearts. And know what it is that we're desiring. So, they can go, so, that, so that they won't go unchecked and unabated and left uh, lingering and growing and maturing. And, and lead us into sin. And lead us into death. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you've come uh, and you have uh, single-handedly uh, reconciled the worst of all conflicts.
Because of our sin, we have, uh, we are on our ways to death and hell. And but but you you looked at the conflict. You looked at the conflict, and, and in light of the conflict, you yourself had a desire, and your desire was to come and save your people. Oh, God, thank you, Lord. Thank you that in the midst of conflicts, you still found a way to redeem. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we find ourselves in conflict, as we find ourselves uh, in fights and in quarrels, we too would look at your example uh, and we would see our desires and, and see how they're contributing and we would submit them to your throne. That we would be people of humble hearts and submit them to your throne. Therefore, uh, accessing the multitudes of grace that you've uh, allowed us to, to, to partake in. So Lord, we thank you for this time. May your, may your name be glorified uh, and, and, and continue just to give us a desire to worship and serve you, uh, and, and praise your name uh, genuinely and freely. Uh, and so all these things we pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.